Welcome to the serialized audiobook, Contagious, book two of the Infected Trilogy, written by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler, performed by the author. Contagious is also available in print, ebook, and unabridged audiobook. For links to purchase any version, visit scottsigler.com slash contagious. Roadblock. About six miles off the I-75 on-ramp, Private First Class Dustin Clymer looked to the sky and watched a Black Hawk helicopter head west. For the past 30 minutes, the helicopter had been cruising around slowly, watching the roads below. Something was up. Dustin wondered if they'd got one. Dustin, Neil Lilling called out. The swab. Sorry, Dustin said, then slid the swab into the white detector. He'd been holding both, swab and detector, but the helicopter's sudden movement had distracted him. After just a couple of seconds, the detector let out two short beeps and the green square lit up, indicating a negative result. She's fine, he said to Neil. Neil bent down just a bit to look in the car window. You're all set, ma'am, Neil said. The woman let out a huge sigh of relief. Dustin wasn't sure if her relief came from a negative result in the flesh-eating bacteria test or because the four heavily armed men surrounding her car finally seemed to relax. When can I come back home? The woman asked. This is just so crazy. Neil nodded. Yes, ma'am. You should be able to come back tomorrow or the next day at the latest. Just watch the news. Thank you, officer. Neil laughed. I'm a soldier, not a cop, ma'am. The woman gave an exaggerated nod, as if to say yes, of course. Neil smiled again and stood back from the car. The woman put it in gear and drove past the checkpoint, continuing down the snow-covered dirt road. Dustin and Neil stood there in the early morning cold, waiting for the next car. Joel Brower was at the side of the road, manning the M249 machine gun, so he had to endure the cold as well. James Eager, the fourth member of their team, slid back into their Hummer's heated interior. He only had to come out when a car drove up, which meant Dustin was damn jealous of him at the moment. Fifteen more minutes, then he and Neil would switch positions with James and Joel. With the helicopter gone, they could hear the faint sound of snowmobiles again. Local boys whipping through the woods, probably. James opened the door and leaned out. They got one, he called. Triangle Hole's trying to get on the I-75 on-ramp. Cope said to stay sharp. They're sending the backup units to reinforce the on-ramp in case there's more, so we're on our own for a bit. Got it, Dustin said. James slid back inside the heated Hummer and Dustin hated him a little more. This is kind of trippy, Neil said. What is, Dustin said, fighting little monsters and shit? Well, sure, but what I mean is, even though we're fighting little monsters and shit, we're still pulling checkpoint duty. I mean, I'm staying sharp and all, but this is boring, you know? We've seen three cars in the past two hours. Dustin shrugged. What are you going to do? We have to check everyone. They just got one. Didn't you hear James? Yeah, yeah, I heard. Neil said. It's just, I mean, five days ago we shot the bejesus out of that construct thing and now here we are checking IDs and swabbing civvies. Five days ago we're shooting friggin' electric bullets and monsters and today our primary weapons are these. Neil pulled a zip tie out of his pocket and waved the long, thin piece of plastic. The plastic restraints let them detain large numbers of people if necessary and were much lighter than handcuffs. I might beat a hatchling to death with this, Neil said, 
whipping the zip tie like a flaccid sword. Oh, relax, Dustin said. Colonel Ogden isn't telling you not to defend yourself. If we're in danger, we shoot. Neil spun 180 degrees and landed in an overly dramatic, wide-legged stance. He pulled out another zip tie and waved one in each hand like nunchucks. I don't know, he said. I bet I can stop bullets with these bitches. Joel was cracking up. The laughter made Neil ham it up some more. Dustin shook his head. Fucking idiots. These were the morons he got to work with? The sound of snowmobiles seemed to draw closer for a bit, then stopped. Climber and Neil looked to the trees, but couldn't spot the sleds. Joyride? Neil asked. Maybe, Dustin said. Doesn't sound like they're trying to slip past the roadblocks. If they were, we wouldn't have heard them all morning. They would have just gone through in the woods. How the fuck can people be joyriding at a time like this? Dustin shrugged. You can't reach everyone, I guess. Although that one dude turning all black and shit. That is people falling all over themselves to get this test. Fuck, man. I should charge five bucks a head. The sound of another vehicle drew Dustin's attention. A U.S. Postal Service van drove toward the checkpoint, pristine white near the top, spackled with thick arcs of frozen brown slush down in the bottom, particularly behind the tires. Mail must go through, Dustin said. You want to run the detector this time? Sure, Neil said. Something different. Gimme. Dustin handed over the plastic detector. James Eager got out of the Hummer and moved to the other side of the road, giving him and Joel converging fields of fire toward the front of the postal van. Dustin stepped into the middle of the road. He held up his left hand in a stop gesture. His right hand rested on the grip of his sidearm. The van gently slowed and stopped. He walked around the driver's side. The driver opened the sliding door. Good afternoon, sir, Dustin said. May I have your name and identification, please? John Burkle, the man said. He handed over his driver's license. Dustin took it, moved one step back, and examined it, then looked up again. The picture definitely matched the man, but John Burkle had a big bruise on the left side of his jaw, and under his hat, some gauze was wrapped around his head, holding a big, puffy bandage on his left ear. You look like you've had a rough time, sir. Dogs, Burkle said. One chased me yesterday. I slipped on some ice and hit a tree. Pathetic, right? That's unfortunate, sir. Well, anyway, I already got swabbed, Burkle said. I was the guy that found the body. Dustin nodded. Who swabbed you? The paramedics did. I was so freaked out, I went to the hospital and insisted they do it again. I tell you what, you couldn't pay me enough to do your job. I appreciate that, sir, Dustin said. However, if you don't mind, I have to swap everyone who goes through this checkpoint. The postman shrugged. No problem. It's painless. You need me to get out? That's okay, sir. Please stay where you are. He handed John back his license, which the man took. Dustin then offered the foil packet with his left hand. Please open this, pull out the swab inside, run it inside your cheek and along your gum line, then hand it back to me stick first. John reached for the foil packet. Just as he was about to grab it, his hand shot forward and gripped Dustin's left wrist. Dustin yanked back reflexively, causing John to stumble out of the van. Dustin reached over with his right hand and grabbed John's wrist. He was about to wrench it free and twist the arm down to put John on his face when he saw something in the postman's other hand. It took only a fraction of a second to realize it was a taser. Another fraction to feel 50,000 volts hit his left hand and course through his body. 
He jerked convulsively, brain on hold, body doing its own thing. From the far side of the road, past the van, Dustin heard gunshots, the long reports of a hunting rifle echoing through the woods. Dustin Clymer found himself on the ground. He heard automatic weapons firing, the sharp cracks of an M4, the stuttering bark of the M249. Then the echo of more hunting rifles, this time from behind him, on the other side of the road. The M249 stopped. He tried to move, but he could not. We're under fire! We're under fire! He heard Neil scream. Then two more rifle shots. The M4 fire stopped. Climber! Neil's voice. Oh, oh, fuck, man! Help me! Dustin shook his head, tried to get to his knees. He heard movement in the van, then feet hitting the road. A gunshot. No echo this time. It was so close. Something hit the back of his left shoulder. His left arm gave out. He found himself face down again. He'd been shot. Holy shit! He'd been shot! No, Neil said. No, please! Another rifle shot. This one, only ten feet away. Neil said no more. Snowmobile engines getting closer. Another sound. A vehicle approaching. Larger than a car or the mail truck. Noise, pain, movement. It all overwhelmed his senses. Dustin was flipped onto his back. Hands covered his eyes. Hands held his arms. A whirlwind of confusion and pain. He started to kick, but a fist in his stomach ended the struggle, curling him up into a fetal position. Hands on his face, holding his jaw open. Something wet in his mouth. Burning in his mouth. Hands pushing him away. The bigger vehicle's noise fading. His body screaming for air. His shoulder just plain screaming. A crackling sound. A whooshing sound. Heat. Real heat. Nearly scorching the side of his face. A mini eternity without oxygen. Then a half gasp that let in just a little. And finally, a deep, ragged breath. I'm going to kill you, soldier boy. Dustin sucked in air. He rolled to his hands and knees, then pulled his sidearm. His right hand filled with the knurled handle, the cold feeling of power, of protection. You better pull that trigger, soldier, or I'm going to shoot you like I shot your friends. Dustin pushed himself to one knee, right hand holding the pistol, left hand dangling uselessly, dripping blood onto the frozen dirt road. To his right, flames billowed out of the postal van, fat orange tongues licking the air and spewing forth roiling black smoke. In front of him, a man standing, holding a hunting rifle. It wasn't the man who had been driving the van. He pointed the rifle at Dustin. Gonna kill you, soldier boy! Dustin's first shot hit the man dead center in the chest. Two small feathers drifted away from his down coat. The man took one step back, then looked at his chest. Past the man, far past, Dustin could see the rear end of a white and brown RV driving along the road. The man looked up. He smiled and started to say something right before two more shots hit him in the chest. Still holding the hunting rifle in both hands, the man sagged and fell to his back. Dustin struggled to stand. He felt weak, cold, but turned and looked for Neil. Neil lay on his back in a puddle of dark red. Someone had shot him in the face, blowing his brains all over the road. 
Looked like he'd also been hit in the leg, a fist-sized blood spot above his right knee. Dustin turned. He had to check on the others. He stepped forward, his right hand keeping the shaking gun pointed at the fallen man. The man's eyes were wide open, a snarl locked on his face. Dead as fuck, just like Neil. Tit for tat, you infected motherfucker. Dustin stumbled again, barely catching himself as his foot slid on the snowy road. Oh man, getting shot fucking hurt. He kept moving, checking his squad mates. Joel was slumped face down over the M249. Not moving. The man with the hunting rifle probably took him out first. On the other side of the road, James was also laying flat, helmet sitting upside down about three feet away from him. The ground came up and smacked Dustin Clymer right in the face. Oh man, oh man. He'd fallen. He forced his eyes open. So fucking cold. No sound but the wind. Then a soft humming, growing louder, growing closer. He knew that sound. A V-22. No, a couple of them. Clymer put his gun hand on the ground and tried to push up, but his palm weakly slid across the snow-covered road. Finally, he passed out. In the climate-ravaged world of 2072, the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. Pura is a geoengineered paradise that protects its fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. In a time when the world outside is unsafe, it's vital for Pura's existence that people rally behind the purpose of the city, and Demetria Lopez, head of the city's public relations, tirelessly promotes its idyllic image. But when she stumbles on a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Pura's existence, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the role of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is not what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts. Improper Equipment If this kept up, they need another Margo-mobile just to store the bodies. The live triangle host was on the way. Dew and Ogden had decided to leave the Margo-mobile at the Jewel House and transport the host instead of parking the trailers next to a highway on-ramp and off-ramp. Made sense, 
as the jewel house was far more rural and somewhat isolated. The host would go into the containment cell in Trailer B. The cadaver cabinet was filling up as well. In there, they already had the liquefied remains of Donald Jewell, the pitted black skeleton of Sheppy Jones, the burned corpse of Bobby Jewell, and the corpse of his wife, Candace. Their daughter would join them as soon as Margaret finished the last of the preliminary autopsies. Once again, a biohazard-suited Margaret stood in Trailer A's autopsy room, looking at a big body bag filled with a small body. Gitch was with her. Clarence had suited up and checked each body for himself, making damn sure they were all dead, before taking up his usual position in the computer room. She needed to make this fast. Bernadette Smith would be here soon, and that would require all of Margaret's attention. Also on the way was the body of Ryan Rosnowski, the triangle host who had killed those soldiers at the roadblock. He was a low priority. She needed to clear her schedule for Bernadette. Gitch, get Chelsea out of the bags and let's get cracking. We need to do this fast. Marcus, are you there? Yes, ma'am, she heard Marcus's voice say in her earpiece. At the cadaver locker, making sure Bobby Jewel's remains are properly stowed. Okay, finish up and hurry back. We need to get the girl done before the live host arrives. She'd already completed preliminary autopsies on Candace and Bobby Jewel. Candace had died from a gunshot to the back of the head, well before the fire scorched her body. Bobby had multiple knife scores on his ribs. Margaret couldn't say for sure yet, not with such a rush job, but the odds were he'd also died before the fire burned him. Gitch removed the small girl's corpse and put her on the table. Burn victims and charred flesh. Always such a joy. The human body doesn't actually burn up in a house fire. To cremate a body, you need 1,500 degrees Fahrenheit for two hours or more. House fires usually hit about 500 degrees. While some could burn as hot as 2,000 degrees, at that temperature, the flames usually consumed all available fuel material within a half hour or so. Bobby Jewell's body had been blackened and charred, but preserved enough for Margaret to find one scorched triangle on his cheek, another at the base of his neck. She'd been on the case long enough to know the story. Bobby Jewell had contracted the triangles, and as a result, he'd killed his family. Then he'd set a fire and committed suicide by stabbing himself repeatedly. It sounded crazy, but she'd seen worse. At least Bobby hadn't chopped off his own legs with a hatchet. The bullet hole in the back of the wife's skull fit the murder-suicide profile. Margaret was sure the girl's cause of death would support it as well. Gitch folded up the body bag, and put it in the incinerator chute. Margaret stared at the girl's body. It was curled up in the fetal position, legs and arms flexed, fists tucked beneath the chin. That didn't mean the person had burned alive and curled up from the pain. Dehydration from fire causes muscles, even dead muscles, to contract, pulling bodies into this posture. The fetal position wasn't what held Margaret's attention, however. What really caught her eye was the size of the body. She looked at the wall-mounted flat panel, part of which showed stats on Chelsea. Clarence, is this supposed to be a seven-year-old girl? Checking, Clarence said in her earpiece. Yeah, Chelsea Jewell, seven years, four months, ten days. How tall is she in the medical records? Um, three feet, six inches. This body is bigger than that, Margaret said. And the hips are all wrong. Gitch, roll the body on its back. Clarence's voice in her ear again. So you don't think it's Chelsea Jewell? Gitch moved the body. Margaret took a good look, 
then shook her head. Not unless Chelsea Jewell was more like four foot two and had a penis. Get due on the line, right now. If ifs and buts were candy and nuts. How is Private Glimmer, Doc? Ogden asked. Oh, he'll be fine, Doc Harper said. He was lucky the bullet didn't hit the bone. Took out a chunk of muscle, though. Colonel, I have to request again that we transfer him out of our area into the base hospital. Request denied, again, Ogden said. Unless it's a life-and-death situation, he's not leaving our area until I talk to him. And you just said he'll be fine, so it's not life-and-death, correct? But, sir, Doc Harper said, you can pick up the phone and have a replacement for him sent from one of the companies at Fort Bragg here in, what, three hours? I don't need a replacement for him. I need to find out what happened. There's no way one redneck should have taken out four soldiers. Colonel, we just pulled a 308 caliber bullet out of that boy's shoulder, Doc said. Three hours ago, he was face down on a dirt road bleeding all over the place. Ogden checked his watch. It's 1600 right now. I want him talking by 1700. Got it? He's my patient, sir, Doc said. As soon as he wakes up, he's yours. But I'm within my rights to say that I will not bring him out of it early. Ogden sighed. Couldn't have Doc Harper bitching about putting wounded troops at unnecessary risk, not when that general star was so close. He'd have to ship Doc Harper out soon, though, get someone else in here, who followed orders, no matter what they were. Who's with Glimmer? Ogden asked. Brad Merriman, Doc Harper said. The guy they call Nurse Brad. Ogden nodded. He knew Nurse Brad. Good kid. Medic first class, but somewhere along the line, the boys started ripping on him, for being a male nurse, and the nickname stuck. You and Merriman both sit with Clymer, Ogden said. If one of you has to take a crap, the other is staring at Clymer to see if he wakes up. And when he does wake up, you call me immediately. You understand? Doc Harper nodded and saluted, then turned and walked out. Ogden didn't like being such a hard ass, but he needed answers. Three of his soldiers killed. The only known enemy unit a 31-year-old civilian named Ryan Rosnowski, who had stolen a mail truck and tried to run the roadblock. The postman assigned to that truck was missing and presumed dead. Rosnowski had four triangles. He also had a wife who was nowhere to be found and a house that showed signs of a struggle, including blood on the living room floor. Ogden knew that triangle hosts were dangerous, sure, killers, no question, but a guy with a hunting rifle setting a postal van on fire then taking out four trained soldiers? It just didn't add up. But it wasn't all bad news. They had finally succeeded in capturing a live host. Mission accomplished. That's what made the general star a lock, just as long as he didn't fuck anything up. But that star would come at a price. More names in his little blue book. Neil Illing, James Eager, Joel Brower. If he'd been able to put a full squad at each checkpoint, nine men instead of four or five, those boys might still be alive. Maybe he should have brought the other two companies. No, his plan was solid. It allowed for the maximum situational flexibility under the circumstances. If they'd had more time. If he'd had more men. If ifs and buts were candy and nuts, what a wonderful Christmas it would be. He'd write the families later that night. The best part of the job, really, telling some proud mom that her son had died while serving his country. 
Corporal Cope, get in here. Cope was in the tent before Ogden even finished the second sentence. Must have been waiting right outside, just in case he was needed. You didn't get guys like Cope all that often. Sir? Where the hell are my updates on the air search? Nothing so far, Cope said. All recon flights came up negative. Satellite squints say the same thing. Doesn't look like there's a construct within at least 50 miles. Damn it. It had to be out there. Bernadette Smith had tried to escape. So had Ryan Rosnowski. How many infected had slipped out, either between the roadblocks or before Ogden arrived? No maps this time. None in Smith's car or at her house. Same for Rosnowski. And the jewel place was a cinder. No clues. If they were going to find the gate's location, once again, it was all up to Perry Dossie. APB on Clan Jewel. Dew Phillips sat in the Margot Mobile's computer room. He and Perry had the room to themselves. Gitch, Marcus, Margaret, and Clarence were all in the Trailer B containment cell, locking down a feisty Bernadette Smith. Dew wanted to hit a certain chief of staff, then rub her face in broken glass, and finish up with a nice saltwater spritz on the fresh cuts. Dew, are you okay? Perry asked. You got veins pulsing in the top of your big, bald head. I'm not okay, Dew said. Fuck, we had him. Vanessa Colburn was the reason the jewels had escaped. If she'd just let Murray do his thing, Dew would have that family in custody right now. We almost had who, Perry said. The jewels. Those bodies we found in the fire? Not the jewel family. We don't know who the woman is. The man was Wallace Beckett, identified from dental records. They're guessing the dead kid is his son, Beck Beckett. They searched the Beckett house, found Nicole Beckett chopped up and stuffed into a laundry hamper. But Margaret said the man had triangles. That's what's fucked up, Dew said. Wallace Beckett did have triangles. The Jewell family was a man, a woman, and a kid. We found the bodies of a man, a woman, and a kid. And the man had triangles. Sounds familiar, right? Man gets triangles, goes gonzo, whacks his family. Wait a minute, Perry said. You're saying the jewels killed three people, including a host, so we'd think it was a nice, neat package while they all skipped town? Try to keep up, college boy, Dew said. Clan Jewel pulled a switcheroo on us. We didn't even bother to search the fucking area. Then who's the woman? Dew shrugged. Who knows? It's not Candace Jewell, though. They know that from dental records, too. So we have three bodies, none of which belong to the Jewels. The Jewels, who are nowhere to be found. If they took off right when they started the fire, we're talking a 15-hour head start. They could be fucking anywhere. What if they didn't leave right away? Perry said. Maybe they're still in Gaylord. Dew scratched his chin. Maybe. Or maybe they were part of that attack on the roadblock. Which had another triangle victim. Do flip through the paperwork. Yeah, Ryan Rosnowski. He killed three soldiers and wounded Private Dustin Clymer. Clymer returned fire, killing Rosnowski. What the fuck, Perry said. Was this Rosnowski like Special Forces Rambo guy or, or what? A plumber, Do said. 
Rosnowski is married, but the FBI can't find his wife. That's not a cause for alarm in itself because the whole town just bugged out, but there's signs of a struggle at the Rosnowski house, blood on the living room carpet. So do your college boy math. Rosnowski's wife is the burned woman in the jewel house. Probably, Dew said. We'll see if they identify her, but that all adds up. Rosnowski kills or hurts his wife, then brings her over to the Jules house. And the Becketts either go there or are brought there. Nicole Beckett was murdered, Dew said. So maybe someone kills her and kidnaps Wallace and his son. But I'm thinking that maybe Wallace killed her and then went to the Jewel house on his own, just like Rosnowski. Went on his own, Perry said. Or maybe was called, summoned. Like the triangles put you and Fatty Patty together? Perry shrugged. Maybe. So what do we do now? We get some pictures of the Jewel family, for starters, and put out an APB on them. Hell, we'll use the media again. Say the Jewels are carrying the flesh-eating bacteria. Perry nodded. Okay, that'll work, but what about their cars? All the cars registered to the Jewels burned up in their garage. So they took someone else's car? Do nodded. Probably. They had three snowmobiles registered. Two of those are gone. If they stash them in the woods somewhere, we won't find them for weeks. So maybe they did take someone else's car. But this whole town just evacuated. We have no way of knowing what cars should be here and what cars were taken by the evacuees. We can search neighboring houses for signs of a struggle, though. Maybe get lucky, find a body. But if we don't find one... There's no way to connect them to a specific vehicle. Bottom line, the jewels got out. All we can do now is circulate their pictures and hope that they fuck up. The Tower of Power. Performance far beyond projections. The orbital measured the growing abilities of Chelsea Jewel. Not only was her communication ability developing faster than expected, it showed signs of immense power, eventually more powerful than even that of the orbital. The reasons for this remained unclear. The crawlers in her skull continued to divide and grow, adding length to the dense mesh that melded with her brain. The denser the mesh, the more processing power, and yet there was something more. Triangles, could interface with the human brain, use it for their purposes, but Chelsea was human to begin with. No need for informational conversion or translation. Her thoughts were a native tongue. All she needed was a connection, which the crawlers provided. How strong might she become? The orbital did not know. What mattered was that her development was ahead of schedule. She would handle most of the communication, the organization, allowing the orbital to focus on blocking the son of a bitch. Strange things are afoot. Mayo, Michigan, is a tiny town about 35 miles southeast of Gaylord. Mr. Jenkins Winnebago stopped at a gas station in Mayo to fill up and to pick up a passenger by the name of Artie Lafreniere. Artie had heard Chelsea's call, but since he was outside the checkpoints, he drove to Mile, ditched the car, then walked to the gas station and waited. To be precise, he waited near the gas station because Artie Lafreniere 
didn't look so hot. Four days ago, Artie had gone tobogganing with his friends. He lost control of the toboggan, slid into the woods, and plowed into a snowdrift. Artie's friends laughed at him as he wiped snow out from under his jacket and the crack of his ass. Unfortunately for Artie, that snowdrift had been a landing pad for a big gust full of seeds, which, of course, wound up all over his belly, his back, and, yes, the crack of his ass. Artie didn't know it, but he was now a world record holder with his 13 triangles. He coughed up blood every 15 minutes or so. He didn't talk much. Everyone understood. They welcomed him into the Winnebago and made him as comfortable as possible. Artie was actually the second passenger. They'd picked up Harlan Gaines on County Road 491, just outside of Lewiston. He and his four triangles were getting along just fine. With Mr. Lafreniere's 13, plus Mr. Gaines's four, Daddy's five, and old Sam Collins's three, Chelsea had 29 dollies in the Winnebago. Only four to go. Math was one of her favorite classes. Chelsea sensed one more dolly daddy out there, a man named Danny Corvez, trying to make his way to meet up with the Winnebago. She also sensed something even more exciting, free-moving dollies that had already hatched weeks ago, sneaking across the countryside, trying to reach her. She told them where to go, but since they could only travel at night and they had far to run, she doubted if they could make it in time. Everything would come down to Mr. Corvez. Chelsea pushed out to him and told him that he had to reach her no matter what the cost. She just might have enough dollies to build the gate, and that made her happy. Another thing that made her happy was that Mr. Jenkins had bought all the Nestle Crunch Eskimo pies the Circle K gas station had in its little freezer. The Winnebago was still in the parking lot. Everyone sat in the back, enjoying that yummy ice cream on a stick. Mommy and Daddy only got one bar each. We can't stay here for long, Chelsea, Mr. Jenkins said. Pretty soon, they'll find out that the bodies in the house aren't you and your parents. What are you talking about, Mommy said. Won't they burn up? Mr. Jenkins shook his head. House fires don't get hot enough for that. When they find out the bodies aren't yours, the cops might start looking for you guys. You'll be wanted for murder, probably. Depending on how bad they want you, they'll run vehicle registration for all your neighbors, figuring maybe you stole a car or took a hostage. Cops might be looking for this Winnebago before too long. Is that for sure? Mommy asked. Mr. Jenkins shrugged. You guys left three bodies in a burned-out house. It's not like it's an unpaid parking ticket. How long do we have? Mommy asked. Mr. Jenkins shrugged again. I couldn't say, but what I can say is we should get the bago off the road as soon as we can. He rattled the map, his finger tracing their route. We're on Highway 33 right now. We can take that to Highway 75, which will get us there after dark. Chelsea crawled under the map and into Mr. Jenkins' lap. They looked at it together. She pushed the route out with her mind, telling the remaining dollies and Mr. Corvez to meet them along the way or at the end. Mr. Jenkins, if we go that way, will we see any more soldiers? I don't know, he said. I hope not. They scare me. I know we had a good plan, honey, but I also think we got lucky. Chelsea nodded. Me too. But if we do see them, we'll just deal with them so they better not try and stop us. Stare Down This time, 
Clarence Otto was by her side. He had a gun and a nylon cord hanging around his neck because a holster didn't really work with the biohazard suit. When Margaret looked into the containment cell, she almost wished she had a gun herself. Inside those clear walls, another woman strapped to the autopsy trolley, naked. She had a blue triangle on her left breast, one on her right forearm, and one on her right hip. Almost three months of work, all the insanity, all the violence, and this was the first time Margaret had seen a live triangle. After seeing so many dead ones, she had thought she knew what to expect. Black eyes staring, blinking. But she'd never thought about them staring at her. Their blinking made it so bizarre. It made them look real. She wished Amos could have been here to see it. A live triangle meant they were that much closer to stopping this nightmare. The woman was unconscious. She had enough meds in her to make sure she stayed that way. At least Margaret hoped. Betty should have stayed under, too, and look how well that turned out. Margaret looked at the touch panel display mounted on the door. Bernadette Smith, age 28, mother of three. Well, not anymore. Now she was a mother of one and a widow. She'd killed her husband and slit the throats of her two daughters, one age five, one age three, before bundling the dead girls into the back seat of her sob. What would this woman be like after they removed the triangles? Perry still carried the guilt of murdering his best friend. How would this woman live with the knowledge she'd killed her husband, her own children? And that was if they could remove the triangles at all. Margaret had seen the x-rays. The ones on the hip and forearm would be tricky but doable. In each case, the triangle's barbed tail was wrapped around bone and arteries. But during surgery, Margaret could repair a damaged artery. The one on Bernadette's chest, that was another matter. The tail of that one was wrapped around Bernadette's heart. The x-ray showed dozens of those wicked hooks, like sharp rose thorns, pressing up against it. One wrong pull, and they'd cut multiple holes. If that happened, even on the operating table and with Dr. Dan at her side, Margaret didn't know if they could save Bernadette. The heart monitor began to beat faster. Margaret punched buttons on the display, calling up the woman's EKG. Pulse rate increasing. Shit, Margaret said. She's waking up. I thought you knocked her out for a couple of hours, Otto said. I did. The triangles are countering the anesthesia somehow. Daniel. Yes, ma'am. Call Du. Tell him to bring Dossie. The patient is waking up. We're going to have to knock her out again and operate right away. If Du wants to ask these things some questions, he better do it fast. Because in 30 minutes, I'm going to save this woman's life and kill the little bastards in the process. You have been listening to Contagious, book two of the Infected Trilogy, written by Scott Sigler, performed by the author, produced by Empty Set Entertainment. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. 
Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.